Till Dawn continues on Channel 5 with Creature from Black Lake. Welcome to Movies Till Dawn, a new podcast that's a safe space for filmmakers to talk about the fascinating and exasperating and always unusual and never quite the same thing twice process of creating motion pictures. I'm Raymond DeFolita, and I'm the show's Toastmaster General. Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks! Mel Brooks! Mel Brooks. It's not even a name anymore. It's, a, it's, it's an exclamation point. It, it, it's an incantation. Mel Brooks. Two sharp syllables. Mel Brooks. That make you smile. You hear Mel Brooks and you smile. And it doesn't matter uh, really what your age is because you grew up with Mel Brooks. You grew up with Mel Brooks. Because if you're, if you're a generation older than me, and you're in your 60s, 70s, 80s, you know him from Sid Caesar, and you know him from 2,000-year-old man. And if you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, um, you know him because when your friends had a birthday party, you all went to see Blazing Saddles, or Young Frankenstein, or My Anxiety. Um, and if you're younger than that and you're into this stuff, you know the producers, one of the greatest Broadway smash hit musicals ever. Uh, the man's accomplishments have spanned decades, lifetimes. No one's had his longevity, uh, and, and no one makes you laugh more um, just joyously and irreverently. Um, irreverent, irreverently, irreverent. I, I think I just invented a word. Well, all right, I'll copyright it after after we're done with this. Um so how am I here presenting a, a conversation I had with Mel Brooks? Uh, how do I know him? Uh, how am I so privileged to know Mel? Uh, about 10 years ago, a dear friend of mine, Alpha Betty Olson, who's a writer and a humorist, um, she's a New Yorker. I was living in L.A. She called me up and she said, I'm going to be spending more time in L.A. And, uh, you know, my friend and my, you know, Mel Brooks and I have gone back many years. And we used to always do this thing where we would put together a kind of dining club. We would go to Chinese restaurants every month with, with a group of friends, the same friends. And I want to get that going again. And I asked Mel if he was into doing it. And he said, absolutely. But uh, we got to have some fresh faces. Got to have some people who I don't know. So Alphabetti said to me, uh, would you be interested in having a dinner with Mel Brooks? And uh, I had to think about it, you know, for a second, you know, and of course, of course I want to. And I, I kind of, I don't know how I said it. I said, is this, is this okay? You sure? Is Mel going to, you know, she said, I think Mel's going to really like you and you're going to like him. You two have a lot of the same references. Now, I'm not entirely sure what she meant, or at least I wasn't then. Now that I know Mel, it's, it's about old movies. It's about jazz and music. It's about humor. Uh, you know, of course. So, so we, anyway, we hit it off. And we've been friends now for, you know, for, for quite some time. And finally, after, you know, 10 years or so, I got up the nerve to say, you, you don't want to do a podcast interview, me, interview with me, do you? And... He said, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. Oh, yeah, right, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. But only 45 minutes. I, I don't have the energy beyond that. 45 minutes. Uh, and I said, fine, I, whatever you got, I, I, I'd be thrilled. Um, oh, the other stipulation was he wanted to do it by phone. Uh, this is pandemic stuff, and he was in his house, and I was in New York. I tried to get him to do it on Zoom, but he, he didn't want to do that. So the quality of what you're going to hear you know, on the one hand, it's not ideal, but on the other hand, when I'm listening back to it, it kind of sounds like old school AM radio telephone talk show stuff. It, it, it kind of sounds like I remember 1970s talk radio, you know, with the phone calls and stuff. Anyway, it, it's fine. Um, so anyway, we, we did it. We, we got on the phone and, and we, we did this conversation that you're going to hear in two parts. Um, it went a little longer than 45 minutes. Uh, it, it went well over two hours, and I'm, I'm going to 
cut it up into these two pieces, uh, you know, and, and, and divide it up by subject. So what you're going to hear in this first episode, um, well, we're going to first talk about a very obscure movie that you can find on YouTube. It runs less than five minutes. It's called The Critic, and it's an animation that Mel did in the early 1960s. And what it is, is it's an abstract animated film, and the soundtrack is of an elderly Jewish man sitting in the back of the theater trying to figure out what the hell he's looking at. And guess who's the voice of the elderly Jewish man? So watch The Critic. It's a lot of fun. It's on YouTube. Then we talk about the producers and uh, the movie, and we talk about how it got put together and uh, the people behind the scenes who did it and how Mel got his first job directing his own script. Uh, and then we go into a discussion of a movie that I love, and it's it kind of, I think it's my favorite Mel film, The Twelve Chairs. And again, a bit obscure. Um, it, it's not a title that pops into most people's heads. Well, when you have titles like Mel does, you know, they're, they're overwhelmingly well-known. Twelve Chairs is between the producers and Blazing Saddles, so it's something of a bridge movie, in a sense. Um, and it's a delight, and it's most unusual. It's a farce. It's very human. It's very European. Uh, it, it, it's like nothing. It, 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 it's like nothing you've seen, honestly. So, so try to watch Twelve Chairs uh, at some point too, if you haven't. Um, and and that's what you're that's what you're going to be hearing. You're going to be hearing a legend, uh, a genius, an icon. A lovely, lovely man, a generous and sweet and thoughtful man. I think what you're going to hear in this interview with Mel is a very thoughtful guy. Uh, you know, it's it, it's it's not the it's not the big exuberant showbiz Mel. It's a guy thinking about his life and talking with me about his work. Um, you know, and uh, and he's kind of funny too. He 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 can occasionally make you smile. So here's part one of my conversation with Mel Brooks. There's my friend, Mel. Hello, Ray. How are you, Mel? I've been better. <laughs> uh, I've been younger. Yeah. I've been younger. Okay. Uh, it's funny, before we jump in, because I know your time is, is limited, before, I, I watched the movie again last night. I watched 12 Chairs last night, and then it led me to a bunch of other videos of your work. And you know what I don't think I'd ever seen that I watched was The Critic. Oh, really? What the hell is this? Must be a cartoon. Shh. Huh? Must be Bite. This looks like Bite. I remember when I was a boy in Russia, it was biology. It was Bite. Up, oh, it's born. Whatever it is, it's born. Look out! Too late. It's dead already. There was a, a Canadian McLarnin or McCarran or something like who was doing these avant-garde animated uh, shorts. And it, he was very, kind of a well-known Canadian uh, animator. And in, I said, you know, in that style, just do a bunch of things and just let me riff on them, and, uh, and 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 maybe somebody in the movie audience would object to my talking over the movie or over the animation, and then I could have a a little bit of a spat or a fight with them, and and we we just did it, and I I guess uh, I don't know if we even cut anything. It was just like three or four minutes and we both laughed and we both thought it was funny and did it wind up did it wind up in theaters like a short before a feature of course it did we won the academy award oh for god's sake why how did i miss this on your on your uh, we won your, the academy award for best the animated uh, you know whatever short documentary or what it was short uh, animated feature i don't know what what the, exactly i'm not sure I know what the uh, category is exactly, but it had to do with short animated stuff. And 
and and you know, and in that category, we won the Academy Award. I mean, you know, it's amazing. You know. Watch this, Asha. This is cute. This is cute. This is nice. What the hell is it? Oh, I know what it is. It's garbage. That's what it is. Two dollars I paid for a French movie, for a foreign movie, and now I gotta see this junk. What is that? Looks like a bug. That means that the first three movies you did, you went to the Oscars each time. Yeah. Well, I didn't go to the Oscars. Uh, we were. It was. We, it was part of the uh, non, non on stage, or not, you know. I think it was part of just like like it it, it always has been, just uh, announced and not yeah. presented in person on stage. But then you were. But then you you won the producers and you were nominated for twelve chairs. Am I correct? Yeah. I I don't know. I think I was nominated for 12 chairs, but I, I'm not sure. I mean, I know I definitely won <laughs> uh, against uh, Battle of Algiers and uh, 2001. I mean, just incredible, you know, faces and original, you know, just original screen screenplay. Yeah, for the producers. I really, expect, I really never expected to win, I tell you. I... I I, I knew the people. I knew I would thank Sidney Glazer for getting the money and up to do to do it with and Joseph E. Levine putting up the other half of the money and distributing it after embassy. I knew those names, and I certainly would thank Zero and 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 Jane. So I didn't have to write anything out. But I did come up with a pretty funny speech when the producers won that award. The speech was like, you know, I haven't made a, I haven't written anything out, so just let me tell you what's in my heart. And there was a pause, and I went, ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. <laughs> I, got a, I got a nice big laugh. <laughs> and then, then I, especially Gene Wilder, I said, and I want to thank Gene Wilder, and please let me thank Gene Wilder, and before I forget, uh, Gene Wilder. <laughs> I, just, I mentioned Gene's. I loved him so much, and I loved his performance so much. It was, uh, you know, it was so, so different and so wonderful. The winner is Mel Brooks for the producer. Just the best of luck, Mel. Do me a favor, huh? The 20 minutes, you killed my whole thing already. The tanks will be in Friday. The tanks. Thank you very much. Uh, I didn't trust myself in case I won, so I wrote a couple of things here. I want to thank the Academy of Arts, Sciences, and Money for this wonderful <laughs> award. Uh, well, I'll just say what's in my heart. Ba-bump, 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 ba-bump. <laughs> But seriously, I'd like to thank Sidney Glazer, the producer of The Producers, for producing The Producers. <laughs> Joseph E. Levine and his wife, Rosalie, for distributing the film. <laughs> I'd also like to thank Zero Mostel. I'd also like to thank Gene Wilder. I'd also like to thank Gene Wilder. I'd also like to thank Gene Wilder. Thank you very much. You had mentioned when you were telling me that the insurance, uh, the camel cigarette saved your, your life story, you, you'd mentioned Joseph E. Levine, but you also mentioned Sidney Glazer before then. Yeah. And I want, he's, he's an interesting figure. Did you, did you know that he... In, uh, invested in the doctor who invented Viagra. No, of course not. How do you know that? Well, I, I looked him up because I thought, you know, he's the producer of the producers and 12 chairs. I said, this guy obviously has a, you know, a big part in your life. Oh, yeah. And I wanted to know what happened to him. 
And and I and that's what he did. He got very wealthy off of that. And I thought, well, this guy was actually brilliant. He invested in, in Mel Brooks and Viagra. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, you, 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 that that is a, that that's a great uh, you know double to invest in Mel Brooks and Viagra. How, how did he? How did he come into your life? And how did he put together those movies? There was there was an agent by the name of Barry Levinson at GAC. That was there was such a company, believe me, back then, AC. And it's not the Barry Levinson that I later schooled in, in comedy writing. And was was he and Rudy Dillick were very close to me, and and a lot of the movies I made. A different Barry Levinson, an agent. And uh, he, uh, I was, I don't know how I got to GAC, but somehow, I don't know, one thing leads to another. I wasn't happy with, with William Morris. I uh, show up shows. I went to GAC. Anyway, I met Barry Levinson. I liked him. And uh, he, uh, I, I showed him my script to producers. And he said, he said, this is very very funny, you know, because I, first of all, I took it to some producers I knew on Broadway, and, uh, and they said, no, this, they, they all said the same thing, too many scenes, you know, the, 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 the perfect play for Broadway, a perfect musical, is one set, <laughs> one set, five performers, five characters. One set, five characters. I had about 35 different scenes, you know. So uh, they uh, they all told me this is not this not this, this is not for the stage. This is a movie, or whatever television. So I wrote it as a movie. I showed it to Harry Levinson. He said, "This is good. I like this." And he said. Very funny. He said, I just represented a guy who won the Academy Award. I said, who's that? He said, Sidney Glacier. He did a documentary called The Eleanor Roosevelt Story, and he won, he won the Academy Award. He said, and uh, he said, anything, I'm pretty close to him. He said, anything you, you think is worthy, show it to me. So he brought me up to meet Sidney Glacier who, when I met him, was having a big cardboard cup of coffee and a big, whatever, tuna fish salad sandwich. He was eating the tuna fish, drinking the coffee, and talking to me. And he said, I, I put the script on it. He said, tell me about it. He said, I, you know, I'll, I'll read it later, but I can't. I don't like reading. I like hearing. So I said, all right. So I went... And so I was telling him the story of the producers, and when I got, I acted out the blue blanket, so he spit the coffee in the sandwich. I really, like across the room, he spit it, he fell down, and he came out of this his fit of laughing, and he said, we got to make this picture, no matter what, we got to make this picture. So we went to a couple of places, you know, a couple of studios that had offices in New York, and you know that he sent it to, and he had some. He had some credence, you know, because he he won an Academy Award. Yeah, you know, although you know he wasn't known at all for comedy, unless you think Eleanor Roosevelt is funny, and then he's for comedy. But uh, the only one that bit, you know, and really was was interested was. Uh, I don't know, I think along the way somebody at Universal said, we like it, we think it's funny. We suggest if you change if you change Hitler to Mussolini, much more acceptable. You know? I said, I, I, they don't get it. You know? So we, uh, we stayed with Hitler, and, and uh, we got Joseph E. Levine, who liked it. And... Bobby Weston, who worked for him, he liked it, and uh, and what was appealing to Joe was that it's a comedy, and comedies, you know, usually worked better than dramas, 
and that Sidney Glazer was going to put up half the money, and it would cost about a million. You know, so so you know he'd risk uh, five hundred thousand, whatever, and uh, he liked it. So he said, "Sit down, have a golden delicious apple, thirty-five cents a piece." For you know, he was half kidding, half <laughs> proud of his golden delicious apples. So uh, he said, "Who could who could direct us? A good company." I said, "I listen. I've been directing." the Sid Caesar show. I said, I've been staging it. I wasn't in the booth. I didn't say camera one. But I did direct the comedy. And I said, Joe, I know you hire somebody to do it. They have to envision it. They have to see it. Each scene in their head. I wrote it. I know each scene. I know just what the set should look like. You know, how it should be you know, appointed properly. I said, I'm the guy. I'm the guy, and I'm the cheapest guy you want. I'll work. I'll do it for scale. He reached across. When I said that, he reached across. He said, you're the director. (laughs) In in the uh, deal, I slipped in, Barry Levinson slipped in Final Cut. Because later, Joe Levine came to me and said, you know, I like everything. He was watching the dailies. He said, that guy, Gene Wilder, he's funny looking and he's a little slow. Maybe you could get a better looking guy. <laughs> he didn't, I mean, the, the great thing about Gene Wilder, the most revealing, remarkable thing about Gene Wilder was that when an, an, when he was in a scene with another actor, it actually seemed like he was listening because he listened to the other actor. He would breathe in and, you know, and then he would talk. I've never, usually actors are so, so, you know, selfish about getting there. I mean, one actor finishes, the other actor talks immediately. He like never gives you any sense that he heard what the first actor said. But right, right. Weigh, actually weighed in his mind what the what the what the actor had told him. You know. Right. I mean, I'd never experienced that. I mean, so so much anyway, and so so eloquently. I thought Gene was just maybe the best actor I'd ever worked with. So. Did you direct him or or Zero Mustel more? Who did you find more natural? What do you mean? Say that again. Well, uh, who who did you find uh, uh, adapted to the part more more readily? Who who did you feel? Did you feel like you they needed to both, direct? They were both. I hate to say that they were both spot on. Gene was this timid, you know, uh, hardworking accountant who was absolutely honest as the days long and 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 true to his accounting profession and. And uh, and when I wrote the line, you know, when 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 he says, uh, "All right, you know, give me a break," you know, so so change the books. I don't want to get stuck. I'm going to take a little nap. And he he goes, <laughs> Bialis like takes a nap on the couch. He closes his eyes, and Gene says, "Funny that he just isn't it curious that one could." One could actually make more money with a flop than he could with a hit. Bang! You know? Right. The other is up and right close to his face. How? What? Wait. He said, what do you mean? What? How? Tell me, how can you make more money with a flop than a hit? Said, well, if you, you know, if you raised so-and-so and so, but you, you'd you have to have a flop or else you'd go to jail because, you know, you can't. So, uh, he, uh, I think he said, uh, uh, the Schnack says, we can do it, we can do it, we can raise the money. And he's, he's already, Zero had it. Zero had the guy. I mean, Zero would have, would have made a, a, a great crook, you know. He had it in his soul, you know. He, right. He was, he was amazing, you know. It's so simple. 
Step one, we find the worst play in the world, a surefire flop. Step two, I raise a million bucks. A lot of little old ladies in the world. Step three, you go back to work on the books. Phony list of backers, one for the government, one for us. You can do it, Bloom. You're a wizard. Step four, we open on Broadway. And before you can stay, step five, we close on Broadway. Step six, we take our million bucks, we fly to Rio de Janeiro. Rio. Rio by Mr. the sea. Oh, wait a minute. I'm an honest man. You don't understand. No, Bloom, you don't understand. This is faith. This is destiny. This is kismet. There's no avoiding it. Mr. Bialik talked not more than five minutes ago. I doctored your books. That, sir, is the ultimate extent of my criminal life. Whoa! I want that money! Oh. I fell on my keys. I mean, Gene would say, he ad-libs some lines that were just brilliant. Like, suddenly Max goes into a dance and grabs Gene. Rio, 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 the sea by the CO, and he's there. And, and Gene said, you're holding me too tight. <laughs> you, know, you know, I just left it in, you know. Oh, that was his. That was his improv. Yeah. Yeah, that was you're holding me too tight. And then, uh, but I gave him a great line when, when Zero drops him and says, "I want that money," screams to the heavens, "I want that money," and you cut to Gene, and Gene says, ah, "I fell on my keys." <laughs> you know, I didn't make that up. That was a line I wrote. But his, his, you know, I was so. I thank God every night for Bialystok and Bloom, for, 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 you know, Zero Must Tell and Gene Wilder. I mean, mm. Did you, given that, 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 given that that was your first movie directed, uh, did, you, did, you, did you do a lot of planning, a lot of rehearsing? Were you nervous about that? I, I'm, I'm just curious about, and maybe in, in terms of how you, you, you did it subsequently, uh, you, you know, how, how, how did you approach that? I, I did. I, I, I was, you know, I was a little bit of a slave driver about rehearsals because I knew if, you know, once the camera rolls, you, you, you know, you're spending money with the film grinding away. You know, I never did more than four takes. Mm. Usually I got it on take one or two because of the rehearsals. And because, because Gene was so diligent he kind of made Zero just a little more, Zero is a, a genius, but a little more professional. Because he was so, I mean, uh, Zero would admire his, you know, how perfect he played. Gene, he said, well, you could, if you could play in his head, be honest, if you could play Bloom, so perfectly, I can certainly match you with Bialystok, and I think that was, and he's really, he really all stops out. He just went went for broken, knew his stuff, and I think he probably did more homework on Max Bialystok than he ever did in his life on any other part. So uh, it was it was really. I mean, Zero was heaven and hell. He was—he was—he uh, had—he had a kind of a, a bad leg that was—he was injured in an accident with a bus. He stepped off the curb about uh, seven years before we were shooting, and and his leg was injured and it never really got perfect. But and he—he'd get pain in it, you know. Man, at the end of the day, he'd want to—he would sometimes he would just. Leave, you know. It was, mm. he, sometimes he would just leave. He was in pain, and I just was he was he temperamental. Kind of, but he's also listen. When he was good, he was an angel. Really, when he was good, he he would do the takeover. He would add stuff to it. He would like I when I gave him that line, he looked right into the camera perfectly and said, "This man should be in a straitjacket." I mean, it was just, that was the first time I broke the fourth wall. I, I never stopped doing that. But, I mean, so he was heaven and hell. And Gene was always heaven. There was not a, mm. uh, not a brushstroke of hell in his, in his character and his personality. But we did it. I mean, it was uh, $941,000. 
and eight weeks, you know, five days a week, uh, ten hours a day, eight weeks, and that to the penny. Right. Not you know, actually maybe uh, maybe forty or fifty thousand under, but whatever. But to the penny, got it, got it done. Even I saw it again recently on on um, Turner Classics, and it's it's a nice tour through New York in that uh, era in 1967 68. Uh, it, you know, you see the village. Uh, yeah. it, 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 it it's like it's a it's a nice. There's a bit of a time capsule to it that that's very that's very cool. So you know, so but and, and I guess that was a a fairly short schedule uh, for a movie then. It was. It was it was on the money, and uh, and then Sydney trusted me to get all the money because we we got our money back and some 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 a little extra change, but uh, I I don't think uh, all, all studios had an overhead, so that's where they they didn't have to they legitimately stole the money with with this overhead clause. You know, 35% of everything that came in. Can you imagine 35% with everything that came in just to distribute it? And then they got every penny back before that. They were the first to be paid. They had to get their million dollars back. And then 35% of every dollar that came in uh, for distributing, you know, the film. So... Some drink champagne, some die of thirst. No way of knowing which way it's going. Hope for the best, expect the worst. Hope for the best. Expect the worst. The world's a stage, we're unrehearsed. Some reach the top friends, my love is from friends. Hope for the best, expect the worst. Are you a man? That was splendid Then he died the day he planned to go and spend it Shouting, live while you're alive No one will survive Life is sorrow Here today and gone tomorrow Live while you're alive No one will survive There's no guarantee But this is, this is where I'm back to, to Sidney Glazer Who seems like such an interesting character in your life Uh Sidney Glazer decides he wants to do another picture with you, and you bring him this very, I think, very peculiar idea, which is to make uh, a version of a 19, I think it's a 1928 Russian novel. Yeah. Uh, where, where, where did the, where did the, this idea come from, and what must he be, he have thought of it? I, I'm sure Good he question. thought the world of you at that point. Good question, and I'm going to answer you, Julie Green was an omnivorous reader and he, he had read uh, I don't know which came first maybe I think the 12th chair came first and, and then the little golden cap there were two Russian writers buddies and they, they worked for uh, strangely enough for a, a railway workers union that had a news, newspaper and they they wrote a, a column for the newspaper, and then they decided that they would write a book together. So they wrote, I think, the Little Golden Calf, which was a big hit, and or I think they or the Twelve Chairs, one of them. They wrote two two major novels, the Little Golden Calf, about their adventures in New York. Maybe that was second. Yeah, the adventures in the New World in New York. And then they, and the first one, which was the turning of Russia into the Soviet Union, encapsulated brilliantly and outrageously in the Twelve Chairs. A simple plot. An aristocratic woman is dying, and she says to her son, who was an aristocrat but is now a petty clerk because of the revolution. And she says, 
I've sold I've sold my jewels into one of the twelve chairs we had around the dining room table. And he first he launches and curses her and I was reading the book and then he 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 uh, relents and says it's it's all right, it's, it's all right. But then he's thinking. He's thinking. There's a fortune, a fortune of diamonds in one of those chairs. What the fuck? What happened? What the hell happened to those chairs? I mean, it's a brilliant idea. It's a perfect move. I, when I read it, because Julie said to me, I think you should read this book because it's a great adventure. It's a great chase. I, it might even make a movie. And the minute I, you know, and I read it, I was halfway through them. I said, this is a movie. I see it. I see the characters. I see the chase. I see the insanity. I see. I see what I love for uh, for for the inner plot, for the for the the private theme that I like to work on. Is because all my movies seem to be money or money or love, you know, money <laughs> money or or, or or you know, or yeah. Because that's Piala Stuck and Bloom. It's money or love. Then right. the next one, the next one. What is it? Is it jewels, or is or is it love? They finally end up together. You know. Right. Money or love. That's that's Mel Brooks's theme. Money or love. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty good when we when we have our Chinese meal. I always spring for it, don't I? It doesn't mean I love everybody there. But I don't care I, about money. If I have any money, I spend it. You know. Right. <laughs> I don't think I like money. I probably love what money can do for me, but I right. don't like money itself. And I think that oh, I don't like what the world thinks. And money and love with the world, money is always first. <laughs> you know. Of course. Love takes a <laughs> to money, and you know, all over the world. And that's what I've been trying to correct, but I've been failing. Yeah, yeah you've, you, you've managed to fail upwards, I guess. Yes. <laughs> I don't mind. I Listen, I don't mind earning the money. Yeah. I, just, I want to be able to get, always get enough money to make my dreams happen, you know, make my movies. And The Twelve Chairs was a big dream, a big dream. What now was that also financed between Glazer and Joseph Levine? No, I didn't see the other name. Glazer thought I said, and he, and he was going to distribute it, and which was a big mistake because no matter what you've done, no matter how good or bad the picture is, sometimes an opening weekend could get you even if you're if you're you know if you're a studio. If you're Universal, if you're Paramount, if, you know, if you're MGM, because you can you can open your movie in 2,500 theaters, and in two weeks you could you could I don't know get close to even. You know, Sydney had no theaters that he could count on. He just he counted on himself selling the movie, and that movie was a I think it's one. It could be the best movie I've ever made, The Twelve Chairs, but it never played. It never crossed the George Washington Bridge. It never got across the bridge to mm -hmm. the world. You know, to right. It just it was. It was like a New York, maybe Chicago, maybe L.A. You know, it was one of those. Uh, it was like an Italian movie, like Shoe Shine, you know, or The Bicycle Thief. Loved where it played, loved, but uh, never, never, never had a, you know a reputation for being you know, and didn't have any stars. I I cast it perfectly. I didn't have I didn't have anybody in it with a name. I mean, did you did you think of taking a did you think of taking a larger part than T Corn? Even though I'd be the oh, I had a guy in London, I. Who's going to play my Tikon? Who's going to play that that serf? You know that servant of of uh, Borobianov. But but he got sick, so I said I could do that. 
And I did a great job. <laughs> you know, I played, <laughs> I played that. Because I, I, you know, I, I had comic timing. I learned from Sidsies. I learned from the best. So great. I played. I had a good Russian accent, and you know. Is your drink vodka? We talk. We have some fun. You know what we can do. Master? Tegon? Master? Is it really him? It's impossible. It can be. It can be. It can be. It can be. Oh, my. Oh, that's him. That's him. That's my master. Oh, 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 oh. oh master, master. Oh, it's so good to see you. Here is a ruble. You go have some vodka and you don't come back for a vodka. Your master and I have business to discuss. Oh, come on, business. Come on, business. Tijon. Not to say a word to anyone about my being here. This secret. I'm not to tell anyone my master is in Stagrad. It's a secret. My master told me a secret. So, you'd prefer to keep your whereabouts a secret. Very interesting. Who are you? It was a very, everybody was very good. Nobody had a reputation or a name or nobody was commercial. Was Langella your first choice, Frank Langella? Yeah, oh, but he'd work, he'd work with Ann in uh, Stockbridge. Uh, with William Gibson up there and people like that, and, and uh, I knew I, I needed a handsome devil who was a good actor, and I'd right. seen him work with Ann up in Starkbridge, and I knew I knew he could do it. I knew he could he could play, it. and he was really good. And Ron Moody right. was right and off and of then, Love then Oliver, I think. And said, "Watch this guy," and I saw the Dean Martin show, and I saw this guy, Tom DeLuise. And I fell in love with him. I said, this is, this, this is the most naturally funny guy I've ever seen in my life. He just, he can't go wrong. He is funny with every look, every take, every, you know. And I knew he would be, he could be the, you know, this, this, this bad guy, this priest who, who's just crazy, demented. And you know, money crazy, and didn't care much about God. He cared a lot about. You know, right. getting, and uh, his, his physical uh, comedy through it is extraordinary. Oh, and and uh, did, now, so how did you guys? Because you guys were so you know uh, simpatico. He was in so much of, of of your stuff. Did he bring you stuff? Did he improvise stuff with you? How did how did you guys always, work together? I mean, you'd give him a line. He'd add. He would add another word or two and a take, and he would make it just so much more valuable. I mean, comic-wise, he, he was yeah. great. And for Bionov, uh Ron Moody was was wonderful, you know. And uh, did, yeah. did you know about, you know, what... what uh, what he played, Ron Moody. We, well, he was—he had just been Fagin and Oliver, I think, Fagan, right? Exactly. He was yeah. Fagin and Oliver, and he was just—he was just fabulous, you know. And I knew he could do it. I knew he could mm. be an aristocrat. He had been defeated by the revolution and forced to live like a like a peasant, you know, and and. Even I, I made up a lot of lines that were not in the book. Like I made up, I wrote a lot of lines like, uh, comrade, comrade, everybody called me comrade. People I don't know call me comrade. People I don't like call me comrade, you know. <laughs> uh, so that's a big, you know, the, the Producers is a is a, a local movie. It's New York. You know New York. And then you, you find you're in Yugoslavia. I knew, Broadway, I knew Broadway. I worked on Broadway for Benjamin yeah. Fincher. You know, and, that's how I got and, and then you find yourself in Yugoslavia. That must have been uh, a, a, 
at least a little dislocating, but uh, I was I think I was crazy. I was driven. I loved I loved the book. I loved the characters. I was driven, driven to make it. So I had the energy came from 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 the the need to capture these characters in scenes. I actually shot one 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 I think, you know, thank God for John Morris. He's gone now. God bless him. His theme, the theme of, you know, I wrote the song that he used a lot. I wrote the music and, and the words. Hope for the best, expect the worst. You could right. be Tolstoy or Fanny Hurst. I mean, I wrote some nice, <laughs> and, 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 and it was a wonderful, but also John Morris wrote a beautiful minor, just a gorgeous theme. Mm. A gorgeous theme. And after they had they they had gone through all the chairs, they only had one more chair that that their hopes dreams and hopes were resting on. And they were heading back to Moscow to find it. And they walk through a potato field and in the background there are leafless trees and a setting sun. I saw that. I grabbed an Araflex. I said, give me that. I said, is it loaded? Yes. I fell down in this potato field and I told them, walk slowly up that road. And I had I had a setting sun like a big, like like a a sunny side up egg, you know, and and setting brilliantly. And they were in more or less silhouettes, more or less silhouettes, you know, for beyond enough, and and Astat Bender walking slowly. With John's theme, I knew I, I, he, he hadn't written, he hadn't put the theme to that scene, but I heard it, I knew it, and I, I tracked them in a very slow-moving camera, the air mm. flex to the right, capturing them with with these with these beautiful leafless winter trees, in in the background, and it's. It's the best single shot in the movie, and I, God damn it, I made it. I, and you made it. <laughs> I made it. Yeah. I, I, Georgi Nikolaevich was a very good cameraman, and I left I left 99.9 percent of the film to him. But that shot, I saw, I heard it, I had to make it, and it's it's there forever. It's a yeah. great it's a great shot. Well, I find it a very poignant film, and I think this is one of the things you asked me when I said I wanted to talk to you about it. You, yeah. you said, what, what about that movie? Why the 12 Tears? And I always found it, and when I rewatched it again the other day, when, he, when, when Frank Langella uh, saves Ron Moody from drowning, and he, he pulls him up in the boat, and Ron Moody says, cold, cold, and he gives him his, his jacket. Yeah. And that and that theme is on at that point. That that's that that beautiful theme comes in, John and it Morris. becomes the movie has another size and another dimension comes to it. It's a it's a wonderful heartfelt picture about about humans about people who who uh, even a a rat like Ostap uh, Bender, you know, a despicable yeah. gutter rat who doesn't care about anything but himself, suddenly displays the fact that he has a heart and compassion for another human being. So they're, they're joined as, as com, comrades in, 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 in con, really, you know, and, and, and there's something, and, and that happens again, you know, at the end when he sees him on the ground. Now, was that the epileptic seizure, was that in the book, that, that gimmick, that gag, or was that something you yes. had? Yeah, the epileptic seizures in the book, but the, uh, the I, I changed the ending. Oh, that wasn't that wasn't how the the, was, the, yeah, the book ended. I, I mm. made I made the end uh, like a perfect circle, so they'd be together again. 
and right. the sacrifice of Vori Bianinov's, you know, uh, is, is, you know, ready to fall down and be the thing he hated, despised, a beggar. But he's ready to do that for their, for their friendship, for their companionship. Right. It's a good ending, and I open that with a great another scene that I designed. That's beautiful. It's like uh, twelve twelve women in babushkas sweeping the snow. Six on one side, six on the other, and and a lot of snow in the street, and a lot of snow on the sidewalks. They're sweeping the snow on the sidewalks, and it's the op- opening of the last scene, and it's it's a gorgeous. Incredibly beautiful shot. It's Russia yeah. in in 1905 or something or 19. Actually, it's Russia in 1918 or 1919. Yeah, that's where it is. Yeah, Great. in fact, there's a there's a, a a sign on a on a street sign. I think when Jello passes a, a street sign that says Marx at Lenin Avenue, but Trotsky's there too, and they've crossed Trotsky out. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, I've got everybody. I've got everybody. That was my joke. Yeah. <laughs> also, the you know the Bureau of Tables, the Bureau of Chairs, the Bureau of of, of, of uh, plates or whatever dining where, and I finally had one sign: the Bureau of Bureaus. It was the last right. <laughs> sign I put in that collection of signs. Really, let me tell you about one funny thing. Yeah. Uh, they're in a museum. They see the 12 chairs. It's very moving. They're hiding. Vorbyanov, Ron Moody, is, is very excited. He, and, and Ron has to hold his hand over his mouth. And Ron has to keep him from, from you know, making noise. And he's very excited. He's very excited. He says, we wait till the museum is closed. We wait. They, so they're behind some drapes. They're waiting, and then I, I collected all my extras, all Yugoslavian. I mean, you know, they're they're, they're all living in in, in Novi Sad or Belgrade. Or I don't know. Anyway, or in Belgrade, we have a, I have about a dozen extras who are going to people the museum. And I say, does anybody speak English? The guy raises his hand. I say, can you say closing time? Yes, sir. Okay. Here we go. Action. I give him a bell. He has a uniform. You know, he's good. And he rings the bell and he says, Clogy Bibe, Clogy Bibe, as like K L O G G I B I B E. Clogy Bibe, Clogy Bibe. Cut. <laughs> I, I say, yeah, and Mike Kurtzberg says to me, we're losing the, you know, we gotta let the extras go, and so on. So we need we need another hour to do this thing. I said, okay, print it. <laughs> and I mean, if you listen, I I may have I may have I said I'll fix it in, pro, in post. But when I heard Clogy Bibe, that's what he thought I said. You're right. Or that's the, or that was his shot at speaking English. You know. It's it's interesting when I looked at because I told you I saw the producers recently again and I look at these two films back to back and in the producers you've you've taken you've taken your script and you've made a well crafted film in twelve chairs I feel like as a director you're you're exploding with 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 energy you use that for instance the the chase uh, with the first chair which turns into a silent movie scene yeah uh, there's a, just a lot, there's an energy to it and a kind of joy of filmmaking it's just like you've gained a, a yes, big I think confidence it, that the joy of filmmaking i really hurled myself into it and i said you know uh this this is this is going to be a great great explosive you know explosion a journey a journey of 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 laughter and tears and champagne and dirty water it's going to be everything you know yeah i knew what i was doing and i really threw myself into it 
no director could have done a better job than I did with the 12 chairs. Yeah. No, it's entirely your 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 movie. It has it has a, a strong imprint. I don't know who the cameraman is, and I couldn't find out much about Georgie him. Nicholas. Nor could I pronounce his name. Yeah, well, it's a Yugoslavian name, Nikola. You know, it's a Georgie Nikolic. He was good. He was good. He nailed it. I, of course, I I uh, set up every scene. I mean, you know, it was a lot of work. I was there. I don't know. I was there like nine, ten months. I mean, I was there a long time. I mean, we got a great deal. We got $400,000 was uh, Yugoslavian contribution. It was the, uh, because it turned out they would pay for all the below the line. And they could have the movie to distribute all through Yugoslavia, of course, which they, they, they got. And it... it uh, I don't know if they thought I'd spend that much, but I did. It was the below the line. It was none of the actors, not the script, you know. Right. Not the actors, or, you know, or the, or the script or the producers. Or, you know, it was just, the, you know, the below the line, which was, uh, which is, uh, you know, the scenery, the, sure. the lights, the, the camera. What was the schedule like? How long did it shoot? It, it shot for something like, uh, oh, four and a half months. Wow. Because I knew I had below the line. I knew I knew whatever I spent, right. that would the Yugoslavs would pay for it. So that's why it, it's so well, you know, shot. It's so well directed because I had, I was rich, I was rich in, in, in sets and, and time and, and, and you know, and every you know had two cameras and, and and you have like antique trains and and crowds and I'm going yeah, this yeah. is this is you're moving on to like David Lean territory you know right I know I know it's like it's like a David Lean picture it's very it's very big you know one, their one trek time, to Moscow has that very those lovely grand shots yeah oh yeah yeah I remember one day talk about time um, I. Something went wrong, and I couldn't control my temper. I, something went really wrong. I think the either, either the, the camera was broke, or we or we ran out of film, or I just went I went nuts, and I took I took a chair, one of the twelve chairs that was standing by, you know, just always using, and I hurled it into the Adriatic, and I just in a fit of rage. And uh, then I said, okay, set it up for action. And nothing happened. I said, action. I get, nothing happened. So Mike Hertzberg comes over to me and says, Mel, they're on strike. I said, why? What? You, you're representative of the union. <laughs> He said, you know, here in the communist country. Yeah. I said, oh, yeah, I forgot. He said, and they, they object strenuously to you throwing the people's chair into the Adriatic. The people's chair. <laughs> One of the chairs, he said, they don't know that. All they know is that you threw something was in the movie <clears throat> into the into the border. <coughs> so I got my in, my interpreter. I said sorry, and I made a speech. Forgive me, I lost my temper. It was unforgivable. Uh, I love you people. I love all you've done for me, and I had no right to do that. I had no right to throw the people's chairs, and I will never do such a thing again like that. I apologize from the bottom of my heart. Please accept my apology. I love you all for all the work you've done, and and, and forgive me. Hooray! It was, it was a great outcry. Hooray! Okay, apology accepted. We're all friends again. 
Vignac, Vignac, they shouted. I didn't know what they were shouting. Vignac turned out to be Yugoslavian brandy. So instead of <laughs> continuing to shoot the picture for the rest of the day, everybody got drunk. They just kept pouring this Vignac, this Yugoslavian brandy. So the, my apology didn't mean, it didn't get me a, another minute of work out of them. I got live, which was pretty good. So. If you enjoyed listening to Movies Till Dawn, you can visit my blog where I post videos related to the subjects that I interview. Just go to moviestilldawn.blogspot.com. You can find this podcast at moviestilldawnpodcast.com, but we're also available on most of your favorite podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Spotify, and YouTube. I would love to hear from you. If you're inspired to reach out, you can email me at moviestilldawnpodcast at gmail.com. And please feel free to follow me on Twitter at RealRDEF. That's R-E-E-L-R-D-E-F. And if you have a film geek in your life, or even just a mildly curious fan, spread the word that we're here. Thank you.